He's uh, one of our own in, in a very real sense. But uh, Jerry Gillespie uh, pastored this church for some seven years. But for those of you who came to Northside after 87, you might not know the privilege of sitting under his ministry. And you'll be blessed this day as you hear from him. I want to say that he's not only been a pastor to this church, but a personal friend of mine and very influential in my life. Uh, I was pastoring in this area, and I went to him as a, uh, in many ways, he was my own pastor. And I sat down with him on more than one occasion and asked his advice. And uh, because he fulfilled that role in my life so well, it, it, it's only appropriate that he's now serving with United World Missions as a pastor to missionaries. And I'm just delighted to, uh, to look forward to what God has laid on your heart, Jerry. Thank you, Phil. It's a joy to be here. Of course, uh, Barbara and I just returned uh, on Wednesday about midnight uh, from three weeks on the West Coast in Ministry of Visitation. And uh, by the way, two weeks ago on Sunday, we had the privilege of worshiping together with Art and Esther Tom. And uh, those of you who remember them way back many, many years ago, uh, they wanted us to bring greetings to you, and we're glad to do that. And then we returned late last night from Ocala, where Barbara and I, along with other members here at uh, Northside, attended the memorial service of Charlene Baker. She has been a teacher at Northside Christian School, and members here, we want to remember that family in prayer. And Barbara and I also want to thank you so much for your encouragement in our lives and for the way that you have faithfully supported us uh, down through these seven years of uh, pastor to missionaries. Without you, we could not be doing uh, what we have been doing. Um, so we want to let you know we, we love you and are always grateful for the time to be back home and to, to worship with you, dear folks. Now this morning, we're going to be sharing together, both this morning and this evening, a subject uh, and some of the material that I've shared in one or two of the Sunday School classes here in years, years gone by. So if you happen to be in the Berean class or the class that meets up in the library, uh, you may hear some things, uh, and you'll just stick around. You'll be doubly blessed or doubly bored, whichever it might be. But uh, I really feel the Lord has led us to, to focus upon what I am absolutely confident is the key that unlocks God's, God's storehouse of blessing and power upon the church of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important this privilege that God has given us, this profound ministry that God has given the church. We're going to study that this morning. I think that which will determine whether the church will continue to be victorious or whether it will go into defeat. And that uh, performance of the church, that activity of the church, that ministry of the church that we're going to be considering in our study this morning and also this evening is the ministry of prayer. P-R-A-Y-E-R. -E there is nothing more important than that. You'll say, well, I've heard that before. But uh, the, the reasonableness of prayer is that which many times causes us to give up on it. If this is the average evangelical congregation this morning, and you're an average believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would find that most of us spend only about five minutes per day in prayer. Now, why is that? probably because prayer still is a mystery to so many of us. And I suppose the bottom line is that prayer will always remain a mystery to a certain extent. The bottom line of prayer is that we pray because God has com commanded us to pray. But still there's that nagging question, isn't there? Why do I need to pray after God? After all, if God is uh, omnipotent, 
And if he can do what he wants to do, why doesn't he just go ahead and do it without involving me and asking him to do what he wants to do anyway? Have you ever asked yourself that question? If indeed you are like me, which I indeed have asked myself that question many times, if you have questioned the authenticity, the credibility, the, the reasonableness, the worthwhileness, the value of prayer, I believe God has brought you together with me here this morning to study those questions, to understand prayer so that we can be involved in this priority ministry of the Church of Jesus Christ. We must ask ourselves three vital and related questions. They're noted for you in the insert, uh, the supplement in your worship folder, and I trust that you'll have that before you. The three questions are these. What is prayer definition? Secondly, why do I pray? Why must I pray? Why pray? Explanation. Thirdly, how do I pray? Application. Now this morning we will consider just the first of those questions. What is prayer? I know that the explanation, why do we pray, is the place that we often get hung up and causes us to eliminate our prayers often. But we cannot really answer the question of, why do I pray until we understand what prayer really is? And so that becomes foundational this morning. The third question, how do I pray, will be interwoven with the other two questions, or the answers to the other two questions as we move along in our study. So this morning, first of all, what is prayer or definition? I submit to you there are at least four ingredients to vital praying. Four ingredients. First of all, Prayer is simply talking to God as you would talk to your very best friend. A conversation with God. You say, well, God doesn't speak to me like I speak to him. Oh, yes, he does, but not exactly in the same way that you do as the way you think he should. God speaks to us primarily through the written word of God. And I'm also convinced that if we're walking with God with no unconfessed sin in our lives and a complete commitment to the Lord Jesus, then God may speak also still today to us with a still small voice. But primarily, God speaks to us through the Word. But we don't often have a conversation with God. It would like me uh, saying to, to Bruce down here, uh, how's your family? How are things going at the school? And he responds and says, well, who won the boxing match last night? Has nothing to do with my interaction with him. We do that so often with God. We open the scriptures, we read from the scripture, he speaks to us, he encourages us, and then we turn around and, and pray to him our grocery list prayer. But nothing to do with what he has said to said to us, I encourage you this morning to get involved in what is called conversational prayer on a one-on-one -on -one relationship. When God speaks to you, especially through the Psalms, and especially through the promises of the Word of God, you pray them back to God. For example, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You stop and say, thank you, Lord, you are my shepherd. I praise you for shepherding me. I thank you that I do not have to want of anything because I find my fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Respond to God when he speaks to you in the same context of his, of his speaking. So prayer is conversation, and I encourage you to get involved in that aspect of prayer in your devotional life. Secondly, 
Prayer is also making requests of the omnipotent God. This is where most of our praying starts and usually stops. And this is the area where we start to question the authenticity of prayer or the worthwhileness of prayer. Why do I have to ask God to do what he wants to do and he has power to do? But prayer is indeed making requests of the omnipotent God. It is intercession and supplication. Some theologians bifurcate the two and say, well, supplication is when you pray for other people and intercession is when you're praying for yourself. I don't think that's necessary, but if that helps us academically to understand prayer, we can use both of the words. I rather think they are synonymous. Supplication, intercession, making requests of the omnipotent God. But please understand, in this ingredient of prayer, that prayer is not begging God to do what he doesn't want to do. Prayer is not badgering God, is not trying to get God to, to, to finally do what you want to do. It's not twisting God's arm. It's not overcoming his reluctance. I think there may be a misinterpretation of Jesus' parable of the persistent widow. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 18. I think a misinterpretation of this parable has caused many of us to, uh, to believe that we have to badger God. We have to twist his arm till he finally gives in and gives us what we're asking for. That parable is indeed a parable of comparison. Jesus says that in the first verse there of Luke chapter 18. Then Jesus told this disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So there is that comparison of the story here about this, this judge, this unjust judge. But there is also a contrast here. Indeed, Jesus is speaking that we must not give up. We must be persistent. There is to be an importunity of prayer. But notice the contrast that God is not like the judge who finally gave in to her persistence. Look at verse 6 and 7 and 8 of Luke 18. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? That's a redundant question in a sense. And the answer is no because of the next sentence. I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly, not eventually. So there is a contrast, there is a comparison. Yes, we are to keep at it, but God always sends a quick answer. You say, is that really true? Well, come tonight and we're going to examine that. I believe God immediately answers, a, answers our prayer, especially if we're in the will of God as we pray, but sometimes that prayer takes time to be answered because of the activity of the enemy. Prayer certainly is conversation, talking with God. Prayer is making requests, but not with the idea of overcoming God's reluctance. That is where your prayer lists come in to view. That is prayer, where your missionary prayer letters become very important. That is where your prayer guides come into activity. All are very important. It is implementing on earth heaven's decisions, and we want to be involved in that. Prayer is conversation with God. Prayer is intercession with God. And now prayer often must be what we might call affirmation. There are two additional ingredients of prayer 
that are often overlooked. And because they are overlooked, our prayer life many times becomes very self-centered and thus very ineffective. One of those additional ingredients is what I like to call ratification, affirmation, confirmation of the promises of God. I really like the word ratification. We ratify the promises of God. Mysterious, incongruous, paradoxical as it may seem, prayer is the primary means that God has determined, appointed, and ordained for the fulfilling of his promises. Matthew Henry says, we must turn God's promises into prayer, and then they shall be turned into performance. F.B. Meyer has aptly put it this way, though the Bible be crowded with golden promises from board to board, yet they will be inoperative until we turn them into prayer. Again, he said, God's promises are given not to restrain, but to incite us to prayer. Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, tells about he and a friend that would often rise early in the morning and go up on the side of the mountain at five o'clock in the, in the morning and pray for the souls of men. They were burdened by God's Holy Spirit for the souls of men. And this is what he wrote about those episodes in his life. We claimed the promises as we prayed. Those promises were the brick and prayer was the mortar that put them together. From beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, we will find illustration after illustration. The whole of the Word of God is resplendent with this principle of prayer. We're going to examine a few of them this morning very quickly. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you will find, and we do not have time to, to look at all of these verses, but verse 1 through 17 is a promise from God. And then verses 18 through 29 is a prayer that is based upon the promise. God's promise to David that through his seed would come the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom. And then in verses 27, 28, and 29 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find it summarized for us. David is talking to God. Listen. O Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer this prayer. In other words, David is saying, because you've made the promise, I am courageous in making my prayer. Look at verse 28. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy. You have given this good promise to your servant. Verse 29, now be pleased to keep your promise. <laughs> That's really what he's saying. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that I may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, you have spoken, and with your blessing the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Someone has said, what comes down from heaven in a promise should be sent back to heaven in a prayer. The promise of God inspired the prayer of David. You and I should pray the same way. And when we do, we know that we are praying in the will of God. Let's take another example, 1 Kings now. 1 Kings chapter 18. Chapter 17 uh, describes the famine that has been on the land for three years, the drought that they had had. Now look at verse 1 of 
1 Kings chapter 18. After a long time, in the third year, that is the third year of the drought, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab. He is king of Israel, remember, and I will send rain on the land. Elijah goes to Ahab, and in verse 41 he says to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. But if you examine carefully, you'll find in verse 43, there isn't a cloud in the sky. I mean, it's dry and hot yet. But Elijah heard the sound of a heavy rain, and he heard that by faith, because God had said it's going to rain, and he believed his God. Look at verse 42. Ahab went off to eat and drink, and Elijah went off to celebrate? No. Elijah goes off to pray. Verse 42, Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel. He bent down to the ground. He put his face between his knees. And he's praying, God, send rain. I told the king it's going to rain. I told him I could hear it, and I do hear it, but I don't see any evidence of it. Oh, God, send rain. Keep your promise. And then it rained. Look at verse 45. Sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. And it didn't just sprinkle. A heavy rain came down. When God decides to let you see the answer to your prayer based upon his promise, you will not miss it. It will be a heavy rain. Elijah prayed for the promised rain as if it's coming depended entirely upon his prayer, not upon the promise of God. Dr. Arthur Petrie calls this one of the primal laws of the spiritual world, which I believe we will understand better as we move into the answering the question, why should I pray this evening? I could go on this morning for another hour and give you example after example from Scripture how men who knew how to pray prayed upon the basis of the promise. Let's look at another one very quickly, Isaiah chapter 36 and 37 experience of Hezekiah, king of Judah, he reigned for 29 years. The Assyrians had come into the land, had boasted of what they are going to do, that's in chapter 36, but in chapter 37, verses 6 and 7, God is speaking and he gives a promise, he says, do not be afraid of what you have heard, those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed. Listen, I am going to put a spirit in him so that when he hears a certain report, he's going to return to his own country and there I will have him cut down with a sword. You don't have to fear, fear those Assyrians. They're not going to come in and take over. It's my promise. What was Hezekiah's response to this promise? He turned them into prayer. He turned the promise of God into a prayer, and what a beautiful, outstanding prayer it is. If you want to learn how to pray, then get a hold of Isaiah chapter 37, verses 14 through 20, and study that as a basis of prayer. But look at verse 20. This is sort of the end of his prayer. And now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. Why would he have to do that? He just promised, I'm going to deliver you. He's not even going to come. He's not going to build a siege or nothing. It's going to be a hat. It's going to happen just like I've said. But Hezekiah said, Oh Lord, oh Lord, deliver us from Sennacherib that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord. There's a missiological overtone here that I'd like to stop and preach a sermon on that, but I can't do that. But there it is. That king had a view of the world that the world might know of Jehovah. 
That prayer brought about a performance of God's promise. God himself said, I'm going to do it because you prayed. He doesn't say, I'm going to do it because I promised. Look at verse 21 of Isaiah chapter 37. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, drop down to verse 33. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, because you prayed, he will not enter this city. He will not shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. Because you prayed my prayer, because you prayed my promise into performance, you're going to see it. And God worked exactly like he said he would work. He predicted that Sennacherib would be assassinated. And he went back to Nineveh, his hometown, bowed down before his god Mishrach, and his two sons came and assassinated him. Well, I hope you've got a hold of that this morning. And I hope that you will apply that to your lives and to your prayer life especially. There, there are many others. For example, in Jeremiah, think of one more real quickly. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10 when the 70 years is accomplished I will fulfill my promise and I'll bring you back and Daniel got a hold of that in Daniel chapter 9 and he was reading in Jeremiah and he says hey the 70 years are over nothing has happened what did he do wring his hands no he went out by the riverside and he prayed in fact Jeremiah says that I will keep my promise to end the Babylonian captivity, take the people back to, uh, back to Israel, to the promised land, if you will pray. Because in Jer Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 12 says, then, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And then verse 14, the, the promise again, I will bring you back from captivity. I said it's going to happen. And then Jeremiah says, you've got to pray about it, and then you'll see it. Jeremiah chapter 29 and Daniel chapter 9, if they teach us anything, they certainly teach us that promise, the promises of God and the prayer of God go hand in hand. Isn't it interesting that the last book in the Bible reiterates this primal law of the spiritual world, that prayer and promises go to hand in hand? You'll find it there in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. You know it by heart, probably. The promise is, yes, I am coming soon. And the prayer, even so come Lord Jesus. Prayer, conversation. Prayer, intercession. Prayer, gratification of the promises of God. Let me apply that just very quickly. How do you pray for, uh, how do you pray for one another? How do you pray for your pastoral staff? How, how do you pray for, uh, for your missionaries? I encourage you this morning to pray on the basis of God's promises. If you know certain missionaries, certain Christian workers going through some very difficult times and they're so discouraged, they're about ready to give up, then take Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 12. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or, or, or take 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And the, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. And you say, oh God, I'm going to claim that promise for my missionary friend over there in Angola. That's the way to pray. And you know you're praying according 
to the will of God. Prayer is the ratification. You say, well, isn't that sort of like this occultic name it and claim it? The health and wealth gospel? No, 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 no. Please don't misunderstand me on that. Name it and claim it degrades God to a glorified bellhop. But when you pray the promises of God into performance, that delights God, and he's waiting for you to do it. Well, there is one more ingredient that we just have to mention quickly, and we will give that a little further consideration tonight. Prayer is not, uh, prayer is not only conversation. It, prayer is not only intercession, and prayer is not only ratification of the promises of God, but prayer is also, listen to me, confrontation. Now we are entering into the area of spiritual warfare. Warfare praying, confrontation. Warfare praying is taking an aggressive stand against the powers of the darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. Missionary Abe Wiebe puts it very, very succinctly when he, when he says this, warfare praying is using the double-edged sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that's the promises of God, and wielding it with increasing skill and effectiveness, it is claiming the victory over an, an enemy who is out to destroy God's work in every way he can. It is by faith repossessing ground which the usurper has claimed in individual lives and areas of this world. It is standing alongside a sent one or any Christian disciple, strengthening his hands in the battle. And Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 puts it very plainly to where the battle really is. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? The rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And my dear friends, if that's where the battle is and we're to be involved, then we must not fight it the same way we fight battles here on earth. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul tells us there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. He says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. How often we have fought for God with the weapons of the world and we have failed. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says, no, no, no. On the contrary, these have divine power to demolish demonic strongholds. Stories told that in the Air Force uh, water survival school off the coast of Florida, you can learn some of the finer points of fighting sharks. And it, one of the instructors said, if a shark approaches you with, your, with its jaw shut, you just you snoot it in the, in the face with your fist. But if it, if it attacks you with the jaws open, then you stuff your leg as deep into the throat as you can and do as much damage as you possibly can. And then with a smirk, he says, of course, you can only do that twice. <laughs> well, Satan is more dangerous than any shark. And strategy to fight evil that involves returning evil for evil and violence for violence will have as much success as stuffing a, a leg down a shark's open mouth. My dear friends, you can't win over the adversary on the adversary's turf or using his procedures or his tactics. We win over the enemy because of who we are in Jesus Christ, our position, and we win over the enemy because of the power that God has given us through the avenue of prayer, our position and our power. According to the unknown author of the prayer classic, The Kneeling Christian, 
The devil makes us believe that we can do more by our own efforts than by our prayer. There is nothing that the devil dreads so much as prayer. His great concern is to keep us from praying. He loves to see us up to our eyes in work, provided we do not pray. He does not fear because we are eager and earnest Bible students, provided we are little in prayer. Someone has wisely said, Satan laughs at our toiling, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Men may spurn our appeals, Sidlow Baxter says, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our person, but they are helpless against our prayers. Confrontation. Oh, I know the adversary is defeated, but I claim that defeat for myself, for my family, for my church, and for my missionaries. I claim that through prayer. I take the historical content of the gospel, I take the promises of the word of God, and I move them into performance through the avenue of prayer. I encourage you this morning to let these become ingredients in your prayer life. Conversation, intercession, ratification, and confrontation. But the question still remains, why? Why? Why does God need my prayers? Why doesn't God just go ahead and do it? Why has God chosen to work within this framework of prayer? Why has he given me such a responsibility? Why will he do nothing? Listen, why will he do nothing in earthly affairs apart from the cooperation of his church in prayer? Got to come tonight. We're going to answer that question. Start to answer it. There is not a full answer, but I hope you'll be back before I believe with all my heart when you get a hold of these truths, it will make a tremendous difference in your prayer life. I close with this. God is more interested in conversing with you than you are with him. I don't understand that. I don't know why the almighty loving God would ever want to talk with me, but he does, and he does with you. That could transform your life if you can get a hold of that. He will be disappointed if you do not meet with him and get involved in the priority ministry of prayer, which is indeed the greater work. Father, help us to understand a little better what you mean when you say to us, ask and you shall receive. In the name of Jesus, amen.